Good morning. I am Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. We're very pleased to have Mr. Jeff Valletta back in our studio this week to talk about the very exciting and innovative things that we're doing, that they're doing at uh, Fahrenheit 212. Jeff, welcome back to the program. Welcome back to you. You know, we really, last week's interview, we were talking about your business model at the very end. And I just wanted to really stress that uh, again because. Uh, a lot of companies don't put their mouth, their money where their mouth is, and obviously yours does. Can you go into a little bit more detail about your business model? I'm um, sure. So again, just regrouping where we finished last time, it is a business model that's very straightforward. Um, we um, uh, uh, put two thirds of the revenue that we expect to earn on any given job at risk. Um, we give our clients um, the complete freedom to define those metrics, those milestones for success. We expect four of them. We want three of them to be achieved or not, or be able to be achieved or not within three years, and uh, and and uh, three years of the job starting. And you know, there's um, there there is an amount of money that we would expect at that, and they're allowed to. To, you know, allocate that across those milestones of their, of their, of their making, and whatever ratio they, um, you know, whatever ratio they decide, and um, you know, and we are, you know, in now in a situation where um, we are working in an entirely transparent way. I mean, we're an outcome obsessed business simply because we're an outcome paid one, and the and the, and the milestones that we're being paid against are. Very, very often the milestones that our executives that we're working with are being incented to themselves, or at least they are the ones that the company looking in on this, um, on you know, on this, on you know, on this growth, on this growth job, you know, will 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 be measuring its success or otherwise. And and share with share with us the case study of Samsung. I believe that uh, they they had come to Fahrenheit two and two. And your company came up with a very innovative way to use their their monitors. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, they came to us in a way that's not untypical for companies to come to us. They had an existing asset. Um, it was LCD screens. Um, and they were looking for us to find large-scale new applications or new uses for that machine beyond the three verticals, mobile phones and computers and TVs and displays in which LCDs are played out today and there was real market reason for that. You know, the price was um the wholesale price of that was dropping at a rate that was, you know, frightening for a company that makes, you know, a lot of its profit out of um you know out of you know out of this business unit. Um so we had to help them identify whereabouts, what other you know, what other verticals um the arrival or the advent of a piece of glass could do to create an experience that wasn't there or or, or make better one that was and um, you know, there were two or three um, ideas that came from that portfolio that they've gone on to commercialise. But one of them was in the vending space, and vending was very interesting for us because one, um, you know, it was um, a big enough addressable market. We were looking for large-scale applications, things at least six hundred thousand units or more a year at a screen size ten inches bigger. And I think two percent of the world vending machine industry is six hundred thousand units so if we had a good enough idea we certainly had a big enough addressable audience and secondly the uh, the industry that manufactures vending machines had you know had been in decline over the previous 15 years for no good reason more than the fact that they had no no real reason to go forward it was you know the same bicycle technology that you'd found in a vending machine you know 
and, you know, ever since it had been invented, um, whatever, 40, 50 years before. But the other thing that was really exciting to us um, in our ability to create some market power and some market influence is that there were three companies in the world, um, Suntory out of Japan and um, the PepsiCo business and Coca-Cola, to whom, um, you know, owned a very, very big, large share of that market. So, you know, two or three sales calls and success out of that could, you know, create a market quickly. So... We developed a, um, first of all, a simple idea of just replacing the front of a vending machine's window with an LCD screen to enable a lot more interactivity between, you know, the consumer and, you know, and the, um, you know, and, you know, and the product itself. And it allowed a Coke or a Pepsi or whatever to be able to communicate on that screen. You know, everything that it had inside that machine, not just, you know, a dumb static sign that sat on the outside of it. Um, but I think the novelty, the real innovation came in an ability to think that we could, in fact, connect these all up and that, you know, if Coke was to, you know, um, um, uh, you know, retrofit um, an existing established asset around the world um, and connect these vending machines up, then they could sit in Atlanta and use it as would be a media channel and put anything on any screen at any time anywhere in the world that it chose to and use that as a total sort of living laboratory on testing out responses and receptivities of people. So, you know, a very, very 21st century sort of marketing activation device from a, you know, a very, very, you know, 19th century piece of technology. That's amazing. And uh, did they also run commercials? Uh... They could do whatever they liked. I mean, one of the most important things, of course, is that, you know, if you take a brand like Coke, you know, one of the proudest brand marketers in the world and one of the biggest investors in brands in the world, but even Coke um, can only advertise its brands rather than advertise its SKUs, you know, and if you take a brand like Fanta, there are 38 different SKUs of Fanta. Even Sprite, which only comes in one flavor, has 14, 15 SKUs. Now we were giving them an incredibly cheap digital way of communicating a SKU, a flavor, as it were, right at the point where somebody could buy it, and they'd never been uh, able to, you know, to be able to do that before. That is phenomenal. That is just phenomenal. And the name Fahrenheit, I understand that you almost named the company Velocity Made Good. Yeah. <laughs> There's a short answer and a long answer to this. I'll try and do it in the, a little bit in the middle. One of the most, you know, there's been many, many things I have adored about working in this country, and I'm a person that very much lives for the day. But it has been the only thing I've ever thought in my life. What would have what would have happened to me if I'd actually come to America a lot a lot earlier in my life? But you know, there are a couple of things about America that are kind of dicky and annoying. And one of them is that it's an incredibly litigious country, and um, you know, eight or nine percent of the world's um, economy and wealth, and twenty one percent of the world's lawyers. But but um, um, we um, you know. Um, um, Found ourselves in a situation where, where, where a previous encounter, um, way back in the history of Saatchi's, um, had led to a situation where there was a, a company called Velocity somewhere, I believe in Boston or somewhere that was an ad agency that was using the name Velocity that there'd been some ill wind between them and Saatchi's. And even though we were setting up an innovation company that had nothing to do with advertising, I was still a board director of that company. And I was setting up a business called Velocity Made Good. The lawyers didn't think we had much of a chance if they ever had a crack at us. But Velocity Made Good's a beautiful term. It's a um, very, very elegant new piece of language that came out of the world of match racing. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, something that's pretty dear to every New Zealander's heart. And 
you know, the silly, the silly, stupid idiot that has to climb to the top of the mast that's looking at the weather ahead of the boat, you know, relays that information back to the tactician who plots what the velocity, what is called the velocity made good and gives that instruction to the skipper. And, of course, in yacht racing, that's not always the straight line. So it's just the smartest way to an end point, you know. And that's what we were going to call it. But anyway, lawyers said it would be a bit foolish. So Fahrenheit 212, it became in about 10 minutes. We had to come up with that. And uh, But I can't imagine it's been called anything else. Fahrenheit 212 is, as you know, is boiling point. And if you're a believer in fundamental sciences that I certainly am, you know, the difference between 211 and 212 is one of the biggest changes in science. So, How about that? How about yeah. that? Mm. Be- being that I come from the uh, scientific publishing arena, I can appreciate that. And uh, t- tell us about uh, the uh, Pringles. That was a very interesting di- uh, twist that you put on Pringles. Yeah, I mean, it was um, it was one of those, again, it's one of those situations where clients come to you and, um, you know, in the same way Samsung said, here, here's my asset in the market and it's doing well, but I want to find different applications for it. This was the same, but a little bit different. They had a very, very good science application that they were just struggling to find a way to commercialize it. They had developed a very, very good, um, in their, a very good potato-based, a uh, very good rice-based technology that in many ways was better than potato. Um, one, because of some, some, you know, some important tax advantages that could come from it, and two, it was just healthier. And, um, but, you know, every time they tried to package that up into a solution, um, um, consumers were going rice equals rice crackers equals, you know, chewing cardboard as in what the hell's that got to do with great taste and, you know, they couldn't run away from it fast enough. Um, so, you know, um, I don't think in truth this was an innovation job. I mean, P&G certainly thought it was when we found them the solution. I just think it was more a, mm-hmm. a sophisticated positioning job. They had a very good, they had a very good enabling technology already, but they just didn't know how to voice it and, um, you know, and the reality was is that, um, you know, if it, the truth is, you know, in the whole world of health and wellness, if you can't compete on taste, you've got no right to be there in the first place. And we looked at the process and the way that Pringles are made, and they're made in a very, very unusual fashion to get the uniformity of that chip and, um, and just flipped it on its head and made you think about rice, not as a rice cracker, but rice as an Asian food and how it's such an amazing infuser you know, an absorber of flavor. So we said, look, we've, we've turned the chip and made it around the other way. So instead of baking, you know, cutting potatoes and frying them and sticking flavor on the top, we actually start with the flavor and build out it into a chip. So there's just less room for, you know, less room for flavor, less room for fat. That's that. So, you know, we, we flipped the way you think about how a chip was made. And it was all centered around, you know, the, you know, the wonderful culinary you know, you know, delight of taste that we all know that comes from you know, you know, from wok fry, you know, from using woks to you know to, to you know to you know to create base flavorings in Asian food. So, so um, I mean, it's and it was totally true. That's exactly the way Pringles were made. So we had you know baked the flavor in. Mm, wow, and and then and then the health consequence was a byproduct rather than the reason to buy it. You know, right. Right, because I know I, I'm not allowed to touch the regular Pringles because of the uh, number of calories. But I, I think if I can get my hands on some of these rice Pringles, I think my wife... Totally, she, totally. She, she, More she, flavor, less fat, that's that. That's right. There that's you right. have it. 
Uh, has there been any clients that you have, have turned down that you, you felt that it just wasn't the right fit? And if you did, what was the reasons behind that? Um, well, I mean, when you, um, and it happens, you know, um, and I don't, you know, I don't mean that for any other reason than, you know, when you're being paid to perform, um, you, you know, you're very worried and very conscious of not what we're going to do in isolation of what they're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, you know, we, we are very, you know, as, as, as much as you would find this hard to believe when you're dealing with big, sophisticated companies, they, it is not uncommon for them to know more about what they want from you and less about what they're going to do with it afterwards. And we need to obsess over that, that they have, you know, the competence or the capability or the means to be able to resource, um, you know, un, un, unusual and unfamiliar things. Um, to, you know, to market, and you know, and if we see signs that they are inexperienced, ill-equipped, or aren't in a position to be able to, um, you know, guarantee appropriate funding and so on, that you know, that makes us very nervous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, your, your the management structure within Fahrenheit is it unconventional, or is it, or is it uh, just as you've described it in the sense that uh, you? Everyone has a hundred-day plan, um, but who manages all that? I know you have a management team. Tell us a little bit about your structure. Well, I mean, it's not you know. I mean, I go back to the fact that you know transparency wins. You know, mm-hmm. and I, and I and I and I've been in situations myself personally in other in other in other jobs and other careers when there's just this incredible human nature thing that when you when you're in a void. You just naturally, instinctively think something's wrong. Yeah, you just think some bad shit's happening. Yeah. But never give anybody a void. Never, ever. Why? You don't want them to feel negative juice about things that are 99% of the chance just time just aren't there. So the 100-day plan is such an amazing thing because you're setting and resetting your, you know, your contribution to the company transparently and openly to everybody. But you know, we 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 you know, as 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 an organisation, we're growing very very quickly, and and things are fluid. The great thing about too a hundred day plan is you can never be more than a hundred days wrong. Right. But um, right. Right. <laughs> but we too have a management team um, that meets once a week, um, you know, just to do the important housekeeping stuff around you know recruiting that we're looking at, making sure that our numbers are as healthy as we want them to be, making sure that you know there are nothing silly about you know receivables or whatever, we're, you know, importantly going through, you know, growth expansion plans at the moment and building out new office space and so on. So there are lots of sort of week-by-week decisions that need to be made. But by the same token, um, we break the business into, um, you know, into into two simple areas. You work in money or you work in magic, you know, and, um, you know, and, and, and you're building, you work together hand in glove all the way through an organization, putting commercial tensions in and around creativity all the time. But the money team, you know, meet every 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 Thursday in their in their Thursday club to share the practices for each other of the stuff that they've learned that week, and Magic do the same thing, and and then um, and you know, and then I think the, one of the grooviest things about Fahrenheit is, and, and this kind of happened by accident, but every Thursday lunchtime we have this thing called the Genius Club, and and everybody gets rostered. You know, to bring somebody or something to the company that the company doesn't know anything about, wow. mm. and it happens every Thursday. 
and you know, and you sit round. It's cool to sit round together, um, and 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 you get to see something that is amazing, and it's become incredibly competitive. So you kind of don't want to put on a shit genius club lunch um, um, because last week before we had a roboticist and you know next week we're going to see you know and it's just it's it's fantastic yeah so 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 you know the groups organise themselves into you know into their own ability to ensure that they're sharing they're learning all the time the management team just do the you know the the important housekeeping issues week by week but hundred day plans is king and king and castle you know. When you when you think about innovation for your clients and you, and you provide them with this with this new idea or a new way that they can do their business, do you find that they need to adjust their culture as well, or is that separate from the innovation ideas or suggestions that you provide them? Um, well, there's no point in giving them something that there's no tolerance for. Mm-hmm. So you know, when you're learning about a company or a space for the first time, it's really important to understand you know fundamental things you know about what their capabilities are, fundamental things about, you know, market regulatory environments that just simply have to be adhered to. And it's also important to understand tolerance, you know, you know, just what, you know, you know, a company's tolerance level is. I don't want to produce something that they don't want to do. You know, I want to produce something that amazes them. I certainly have to produce something for them that they can't, that they have not thought of before and that they're not doing today. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the tolerance level between a Hershey Corporation and a Coke is a different tolerance level. And, you know, and it's just ignorant of you and foolhardy of you not to appreciate you know, and understand that difference. But it's not about culture. Mm-hmm. I don't believe culture is a function of how they want to work with you creating those ideas and some companies want to be richly involved with you and want knowledge transfer all the time and others go you go away and do it and I'll only resource it when you give me something to resource that's more about the culture mm-hmm. but I think what's far more important about it when you're creating things that don't exist is that you need to be as extraordinary in your creative capability to generate something that has not been invented before as much as you need to be solid in your belief that the company can execute this and profit by it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you dumb that down, if I'm not as exciting to the CFO of the company as I am the CEO, it won't fly. Mm-hmm. It won't fly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our, our, you know, the way money and magic work in our organization is, you know, when I present a portfolio of ideas for any given growth challenge to a client, they're not concepts, they're not, they're not ideas, they're commercial propositions. And you know, and I and I have got every good reason to believe that um, you know this idea um, um, is unique. This idea can be done, and this idea has money in it. Excellent. And for the for the budding entrepreneur who is just out of uh, college or B school, what advice would you give them in regards to them wanting to start an innovation business such as yours? So that's a good question. Um, go and work for a good one first, right? Pinch as much stuff as you can, you know, you know, um, you know, and learn, you know, you know, you know, and learn from it would be would be useful. But I think that um, you know, ask yourself honestly. I mean, there is a fundamental difference in anybody. The, the, the questions that you need to be confident about yourself if you're going to be an employee versus an entrepreneur are fundamental, you know. Mm-hmm. And you can be massively successful doing either. There's not a right or wrong answer there, but you know, but the, you know, but they, you know, but they are different. And you've got to ask yourself different questions about your risk levels, and you know, and so on and so on. 
But I think, you know, um, the most important piece of advice I could give is sit down, write down three things you think you're absolutely amazing at, and then write down the three things you think you're totally shit at, Mm-hmm. And then go and find somebody who thinks of the three things you're shit at, they're amazing at. Mm-hmm. And let the bill find a bend. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's fundamental that everybody has a partner. And the partner's got to be what you're not. The partner's got to be your foil. My partner, Mark Payne, you know, no 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 Fahrenheit without Mark Payne, you know. Mm-hmm. His work style is different from me, his confidence is different from me, his capabilities are different from me. You know, and and you know, um, we've been together now for twelve years. I can't imagine a second without him. Um, it's not that we have to be best mates; we hardly ever socialise. You know, um, but he is the opposite of me, and that's just been extremely, extremely important in building out something that's better than the sum of either of us. Wow! So he's your yin to your yang. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's a totally, you know. And I tell you what, a problem shared is a problem halved. You know. You want the courage to be an entrepreneur. One of the ways you can give yourself courage is to be honest about what you can't do and know that you have it beside you. You know. You know, I often find that it's it's tough for folks to look in the mirror and be honest with themselves. Uh, that's one of the quotes that I have on my Facebook page. Is that you know, two things a man has to do: understand his limitations and be honest with himself, because that allows you to grow. That is such good advice. That is such good. Good advice. And let's talk about retention. Um, you know, there's human beings in Fahrenheit 212. Do you have a, any problems with retention? And, and how do you address that? Well, um, um, we don't. And we don't because I think we have a structure in 100-day plans that uh, you know, allows people to very be confident about what they're doing all the time. That it's important. It's being recognised. It's being rewarded. It's shared. It's known. Um, you know. Wow. But and but but I think too. You know, it's not fair either. Mm-hmm. In that you know, um, the core of Fahrenheit that you know came from Sachi's is exactly the same people. We've built on it. We haven't lost anybody. But you know, we've grown you know, dramatically in the last, you know, 15, 18 months. And, you know, and time's going to tell if I, you know, if, if that, in fact, is, you know, is successful. But, you know, you could spend a couple of hours wandering around here and I, I think you'd pick up a fight that there's not a big chance that anybody's wanting to bolt out of the door at the moment, you know. Well, you know, after reading the article several times, you just get the vibe that it's, it's, it's more exciting than Google. You know, it's more exciting than Apple because you guys are really doing some dynamic things in a variety of different industries, and and you're and you're changing things for the better. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're solving big problems for big complex, big complex, big complex companies, and and you know, and the variety of what you're working on is, you know, is, is you know, you know, spicy and you know, and you know, and sexy, and um, and you know, I think to a person last year when we were kind of doing an autopsy on ourselves over the course of the year. There wasn't one person at Fahrenheit last year that didn't end the year better at what they did than at the beginning, and that's by their own self-admission, you know. So it gives you a great, you know, opportunity to self-grow, you know. And um, what's next for Fahrenheit 212? 
do you have any what they call big, hairy, audacious goals? Or, of course, of course. Or it, I mean, you meet a, you know, tell me, you know, and truthfully, you know, you meet a small company who wants to stay small, and I'm telling you, you're meeting a liar, but the, um, <laughs> um, 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 you know, I mean, you know, we're going through explosive growth. It's, you know, it's, it's appropriate for a three, four-year-old company to be doing this. I don't want to be this size. I think that we could sustain a business four or five times the size that we are. Um, um, you know, um, I don't think we need to geographically expand to do that. Um, um, we are, you know, developing further expertise and an aspect of our product that's going to have us longer involved in the commercialization journey. And we're looking at the moment at a couple of different places to play. I mean, we are, we've engaged a very, very exciting and very fruitful relationship already um, with a private equity firm. Um, we're we're working in their portfolio companies where these companies are a lot smaller than the companies that we're used to, and mm-hmm. um, we have a different financial arrangement where we are equity partners in those businesses that we're working on. Um, these companies, you know, are different from the cities and the lows and the Best Buys and the Shell Schwabs that we work on. They they don't have best practice. They're not necessarily looking for the greatest thing, the best, the most unique solution. They're looking for something in the next eighteen months, two years that's going to fundamentally change the valuation of their business. Mm-hmm. So there's a bigger lust to do rather than a lust, a desire for growth. It's mandated. You know, the chief executive you're talking to is getting paid on it. And it's got a finite time frame to it. Now, we're learning there are differences too because, you know, when you find solutions, they're very resource poor, you know. You know, unlike big companies that can, you know, put a lot of worker bees around stuff, they can't do that. But it's a very, very exciting place for us to play. And I would believe that we would, you know, have a portfolio of a lot more of those over the course of the next, you know, over the over the next couple of years. And that will, you know, in many ways not just grow our business, but also, you know, in the nature of the way that we're being incented on it, quite fundamentally change the valuation of our business too. Absolutely. And have you, have you, has your experience been that the companies that are number one or number two are the ones who typically call on you? Or, or have you had those companies who are like number four or five who are saying, we want to be number one, help us to, to, to become number one? Well, you get both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, you know, a four or five company is usually looking with some degree of envy at the one or two. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, it's not likely in most instances to have the same level of confidence of people. So the nature of the relationship you form with a three or four is they're a lot more needy of you in many ways because they don't have it. Mm-hmm. Because they haven't got, you know, not everybody's an MBA, you know, and not everybody's part of their best practice. So that they kind of require different things of you. Um, but, but notwithstanding that, though, you know, the bulk of our clients are still, you know, number one, number two players in the world. They're Fortune 100 companies, and, you know, and they are, you know, um, you know, <laughs> not looking to get out of the top 100, you know. Right. But they're hard, you know. They're complicated big beasts, you know. I mean, dealing dealing with, you know, companies that have, I think, Lowe's, um, which is a company that we're deeply enjoying working with, um, you know, is is you know, it's got something like 170, 180 years of collective leadership experience, doing nothing more than opening another shop. You know, mm-hmm. and it hasn't yet done organic growth programs, and this is the first one, and it's a very exciting charge. So the company's right behind it. It's an extraordinary brief we've been given, and you know, it's 
everything that we're doing is something they've never done before. And but there's a lot of belief, you know, and a lot of good people around it. We've come up with some pretty, you know, pr- pretty robust, pretty unusual ways of approaching it. So you know, it's a, it's exciting. But yeah, I you know, the three and four is, is you know often got an inferiority complex. To be honest. Okay. Okay. Mm. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I'll tell you a story. One day, a company I used to work for, and I went to go work for a startup that I convinced the company I left to buy the startup. But um, you got to have that confidence when you're when you're taking on the giant. Well, Jeff, I tell you, the, where has the time gone? The time has just flown by. Is there any last words of wisdom uh, you would like to share with our audience about leadership before we uh, close off the program? Oh my God! Don't give me that. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm good at the long, not at the short. Um, 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 you know, travel for God's sake, travel. Mm-hmm. I came to this country. I could not believe when George took took the presidency that he'd spent three days outside of the country and he was running the most powerful, important country in the world. Travel gives you perspective. Perspective is so enlightening. It's where insights come from. It's where you will be a rich, you know, you, where you will be a richer person. And you know. If you're anything like me and you want to get into, you know, a, you know, a meaningful commercial, uh, into, you know, creative enterprise like we are, you know, practice being great. Don't worry about being right. Being great. Wow. We're going to close on that great thought. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're here with Mr. Jeff Fuletta, the CEO of Fahrenheit 212. Jeff, thanks again for sharing with us your insights on leadership and innovation for the last two weeks. A total pleasure. Again. Well, this is Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM. And for my friends in Rio and Amsterdam and Germany, we're streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Remember, leadership begins with you. Have a great weekend.